This is the Agile Thoughts Podcast, and I'm Lance Kine. Hi, I'm Jeff Ellingham. I'm uh, I'm an Agile coach. I'm a leadership coach. I'm a psychotherapeutic counselor. I used to be a primary school teacher. I do all kinds of things. Uh, and at the moment, I'm just kind of trying to have fun with meeting as many people as I can in lockdown. This is the first episode of a series called Agile in Wonderland, Human-Centric Coaching with Jeff Ellingham. During this series, we've been joined by a bonus guest. Hi, I'm William Rowden. I lead enterprise agile transformations uh, after starting from uh, agile development years ago. And I've had a recent interest in what kinds of understandings of human, the human mind of psychology and of development can uh, help us be more successful in our agile transformations. During this multi-part series, we're going to discuss a paper published by Jeff called Agile in Wonderland, Human-Centric Coaching. There are links to the paper in the show notes. We start the conversation about Jeff's final article in a series based on his research into the lived experience of Agile coaches. And in this paper, he introduces the Agility Coaching Model. In this episode, we start the conversation with that. What types of coaching is this model for? I would say it's for, it's for any Agile or Agility coaching. Um, I, I wouldn't want to draw a, cl- a clearer line around it than that. Is there a certain kind of a mod- organization this model is a good fit for? I would hope not. So it, the, the, the primary focus is at the level of the team. So if, if, you're an, if you're working with a team in a kind of agile or agility space as a coach, then it should be appropriate. The organizational level is to some extent a lo- of, of lower importance in the model. Oh, okay. All right. Now, what were the life experiences that led you to develop this human-centric agility? So I've been through a whole bunch of different uh, different professions, I suppose. I was an elementary school teacher for a while. Um, I've, been a, I've been a manager. I've been a consultant doing international work. Um, I've worked a lot in government and public services. Um, I've been a, a non-executive director for charities in the UK. Um, and in the last 10 years, I've trained first as a coach and then as a psychotherapeutic counselor. So I have a, I have a bunch of interests, and a lot of that work is around the kind of psychology of of relational work. So whether that's as a teacher or as a coach or as a therapist, I'm really interested in what's going on interpsychically for an individual and what's going going on intrapsychically between you and me in relationship or between the people in, a, in among the team in, in relationship. So for me, Agile, the pull of Agile was always about something and I'm going to use the word magical, and we might come back to this when we start talking about ideology and, and some of the language that we use around Agile, but something happens when we get people collaborating and, and, uh, and self-organizing in terms of what happens in relationship. 
and and the what I call the search for value and meaning the that arises out of that work. So that was always a thing that interested me. I was, if I'm honest, less interested in the outcomes. Um, I was very much of the view, and I know that the, the Agile coaches at Spotify have kind of come to this view, that if you focus on the well-being of the team, if you focus on getting the team to to look for value and meaning in the work that they do, you can kind of trust that other people will, fo- will, will deal with the outcomes. So that was my main interest. And the, uh, when I came to do my master's degree, I decided that what I wanted to do rather than look at data or, you know, do any kind of that kind of high level quantitative work, what I wanted to do was do long in-depth interviews with experienced agile coaches in the way that I would if I was doing a therapy session. So really getting into what's happening for you in the moment when you're working with a team. So I'm not interested in your general philosophy. I'm interested in, take me to an example of when you're working with a team and and it's difficult or something's going on, what's happening? What's your bodily experience? What is, what's your thought process? And I wanted to really get into the lived experience of coaches. And that was very much coming from my, my kind of therapy background. So that was the starting point. The model was just an outcome. So the research was really about, okay, I want to know what's happening. And then when I worked through what was happening, the model was a way of helping me to process what was happening and maybe make sense of the, these paradoxes that I found in the work. So intracycle, intracycle, could you describe what that means, by the way? There's a new vocab word there. <laughs> so this, it's really just about the, the internal thought processes. So we, as, 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 as human beings, we've kind of come up with this idea that we are rational decision makers, that we kind of take a whole load of information and we size it up and we go, okay, this is the best way to go. But what we know from neuroscience is that that's not the way that we make decisions at all. The way we make decisions is different parts of our brain are, are doing a whole different bunch of stuff. One part of the brain over here is, is paying attention to our emotions. One part of the brain over here is interested in, in some other thing, and they're competing. And between them, they come up with a course of action. And we, we kind of layer this kind of rational story or narrative over the top of that. But that's not really what's happening. And once you start inquiring into, okay, what's going on in your body? What thoughts were you having? Some of that emergent consciousness, that emergent decision-making starts to appear. Wow. Okay. Nice. Now your paper, you talked about a a paradox. So what is the problem that you, I'm assuming, well, let me back up a second. I don't know the problem you wanted to solve when you initially started your paper. So what, what was that problem you wanted to solve? I was not interested in solving a problem. I was interested <laughs> I was interested simply in understanding more about the lived experience of agile coaches. It was as simple as that. Well, that was my question. My research question was what's the lived experience of agile coaches? Full stop. You're saying lift experience. So Sorry, lived with a V. With a V. Okay. The the lived the lived experience. So what uh, what is the actual moment by moment experience in awareness of an agile coach as they're doing their work? Oh wow! Okay, that's interesting. I never expected that. So, um, did you get there with this paper? <laughs> I think so. When you're doing those deep dive interviews, you 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 don't have the quantity of data to be able to come up with any definitive 
statistically st significant answers to anything. You're simply coming up with a load of data that says, okay, in these interviews, this is what arose. And I'm, and I'm putting myself into the work. So every time I go through the interviews and I say, well, here's a theme and here's a theme, I'm projecting my own thoughts and my own, my own worldviews onto that. So, uh, so it's a very unclean form of research. However, it's also a form of research that allows you to really get into the nitty gritty of stuff in a way that you just can't with the more statistical types of research that you see. You mentioned that there's a number of interviews and you mentioned Spotify. Uh, can you mention how many people or rough and, and who you interacted with for this? Sure. So, so the actual interviews in this research paper, there's only four people. Okay. So, um, so it's four, four 90 minute interviews, uh, with a range of coaches from different cultural backgrounds, different geographies, different genders. And different experiences, so ranging from someone who's been coaching for 15 years down to someone who's been coaching for three. In a very small sample, I was trying to get a range of experience that would allow me to at least say, not that this is representative because it's much too small a sample, but just that actually if these four people all report the same types of experience, that's an indication that this might be worth further investigation. This might be worth uh, kind of mulling over and, and, and pulling apart. So this is interesting because you and I have approached um, some similar topics from a completely different angle. Uh, a number of years ago, I thought to myself, what is it that's going to raise the probability of transformation success? And the, the short answer, the oversimplified answer, the 60% answer is yep. transformational leadership. And then when you ask, okay, what is it about that leadership that is going to lead to transformation success? And uh, the again, the pithy answer that comes out of Bill Joyner that you referenced is uh, the ability to understand one's stakeholders' motivations and be aware of one's own interests in any particular moment, in any particular crucial conversation, in any particular negotiation that's yeah. uh, trying to unlock the forward movement of the organization. And that's strongly re related to development. And so yes. then I sort of arrived at this human emergence topic as of primary importance as well, but coming from the other direction, coming from the agile community. Yeah. And I love your emphasis on, on praxis, like how, how in action, how, how do you experience this and what, what does that look like? And I, I love the, uh, the interview format as a way to engage with people's form of mind and understand what they're thinking rather than sort of a pre-structured uh, multiple choice test that kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> what do you, what do you believe about this, right? What, what's your experience? And interestingly, sort of my research led to similar instruments, but in the, like the Bill Joyner's Leadership 360, some of the previous instrument, instruments. Yeah. Joyner studied with Torbert. Torbert worked with Suzanne Cook-Greider, and Suzanne Cook-Greider is the, one of the most, uh, one of the biggest experts in Levenger sentence completion test, which is the same sort of thing where people are projecting into a test their own way of thinking. Absolutely. He can have some interv interview approaches. So it's, again, pulling out what people think about what they're doing or, or, or their life and seeing what patterns emerge from that. So um, I'm pretty excited to, to hear about your research. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and interestingly, it was Torbert. So, so Torbert's stage of a model was picked up by Peter Hawkins in one of his books on leadership coaching. And it's, and it's a really simple little diagram that I, I 
I don't I think I can't remember whether or not it's in the paper it's certainly in, in my research paper it was that little simple diagram that takes a generic coach through from skills performance development and transformational coaching and aligns that to Torbert's expert achiever and I can't remember what Torbert's versions of catalyst action logic are. yeah, yeah. <laughs> action logic is what he calls it yeah but but that that was the that was the first inkling in the literature that kind of suggested to me that that stage developmental theory might have a way into thinking about some of these paradoxes wow nice I also want to say that I love that you're thinking about it in terms of paradoxes as well and Maybe this is your therapeutic background, how to live with the paradox as opposed to how to solve the paradox. Um, my first inclination yeah. is to explain the paradox, actually. <laughs> uh, and so I've noted some similar trends in the Agile community in terms of what you call the paradox of expertise, I believe, and the paradox of ideology. I've noticed some yeah. similar. I've tended to explain those from the perspective of stage developmental theory, but I think this approach of how do we live with this paradox is uh, potentially more generative. Yeah, I like the I like the phrase exploit not resolve paradoxes. <laughs> Poor paradoxes exploiting them. <laughs> Agile Grande teaches you systems thinking through dramatic storytelling, such as Carter takes a job to improve a logistics company's adaptability, but efforts to scale agile practices are being blocked by Mr. Chernesky, a vice president who's organized the company into siloed pigeonholes in order to secretly make millions with a dark web shipping service. Carter's life is in danger, he goes underground, and a spy agency hunts for him. When Carter uses systems thinking, systems modeling, and organizational change to save his company and his life, you get to learn how to apply that to your organization as well. Get your free copy of Agile Grande at leanpub.com. We've got those goodies in the show notes, so if you have a podcast player, it'll suck them right up. But if you don't have a podcast player, you can go back to the site where you downloaded this podcast, and that website will have the show notes as well. Next episode, more Jeff and special guest William. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. What are the so are these paradoxes you uncovered? First one, I've, so I've called this an, the expert paradox. So there's there's some great words in the actual interviews like nausea and sickness and uh, about how people felt about um, anything that anything that seemed to be fixed, whether that was Scrum as a framework or a particular way of talking about agile. And there is, I think, and this so I've talked from my own personal experience. I experience a smugness sometimes in our community that we've somehow unlocked the secrets of the universe um, in, in Agile, um, that there is a there is a cult-like feel sometimes, I think, to, to the way that our community, community talks about itself. 